Welcome to episode two of Lines on Music, a musicology podcast with a particular focus on jazz and popular music studies. My name is Jeremiah Splann and I am a PhD researcher based in London. It's exciting to be on episode two already and I've had some quite positive feedback on episode one. So thanks a lot to those of you who have fed back to me about the podcast with ideas and suggestions. One suggestion from Damien Evans proposed that I add a bibliography to the episodes to make it a more useful resource to students. This is a fantastic idea and something I agree would be really worthwhile. So in this episode, I've added some show notes with the biographies of the contributors as well as a bibliography of the works mentioned. I'll continue to build on this for forthcoming episodes, which I hope will make the podcast more of an educational resource too. So please do share this with your students or anyone you think would benefit from this or enjoy what is discussed here. You can find the show notes and bibliography on the podcast's website, which is www.linesonmusic.com. The bibliography for this episode curiously features a book about cod. Yes, the fish. Listen out to find out why. Okay, so on to the current installment. In this episode, episode two, which is entitled Recording and Representing, we continue to focus on some of the papers at the Documenting Jazz Conference, which took place in Dublin at the end of January in 2019. The conference had two keynotes, one from Gabriel Solis, who was featured in the last episode, and if you haven't heard that, I would encourage you to go back and give that a listen, and the second by Kryn Gabbard. And I'm really delighted that we've been able to cover both of the keynotes in the podcast. In addition to the conversation with Kryn here, we'll also have a conversation with Alicia Ward and another with Alan Munchauer. We've only been able to cover five of the papers from the conference over these two episodes, which obviously fails to include lots of the other really interesting work that was presented at the conference. But fear not, if you like what you've heard so far and will hear shortly, then I'd like to draw your attention to a review of the conference by Ian Patterson for All About Jazz. Ian has done a tremendous job in succinctly capturing a wide range of papers from the conference. I've put a link to that in the show notes too. Okay, so let's get into the interviews. So first up is the interview with Kryn Gabbard. Kryn Gabbard was Professor of Comparative Literature and English at the State University of New York at Stony Brook from 1981 until his retirement in 2014, when he became adjunct professor in the Jazz Studies program at Columbia University. His many publications include Hotter Than That, The Trumpet, Jazz and American Culture, published by Faber and Faber in 2008, Black Magic, White Hollywood and African American Culture, published by Rutgers University Press in 2004, and Jammin' at the Margins, Jazz and the American Cinema, published by the University of Chicago Press in 1996. He's also the editor of two highly influential anthologies, Jazz Among the Discourses and Representing Jazz, both published by Duke University Press in 1995, and Kryn and I will speak a little bit about those shortly. His most recent book is Better Get It In Your Soul, an interpretive biography of Charles Mingus, published by the University of California Press in 2016. And he continues to edit the Oxford Bibliography on Cinema and Media Studies. As with the others, my conversation with Kryn focused largely on his keynote from the conference, which dealt with themes of representation of jazz across a range of media, from TV to film to video games. In addition to the keynote, we also spoke briefly about some of his other writings and about the seminal edited collections representing jazz and jazz among the discourses. To begin with, I asked Crane about his experiences of the conference in Dublin. Yeah, I I thought it was a particularly uh, successful conference and just in terms 
of the way uh, our man Damien Evans put it together. I mean, just ev everything seemed to happen on time, and all the technical problems, of which there were many, were immediately fixed. Uh, and I just felt as if there was a, there was a sense of, of purpose and uh, um, esprit de corps throughout uh, the conference. And I was amazed to discover it was the first ever jazz conference in Ireland. And mm -hmm. everyone immediately, Absolutely. when you say, well, why, why only now? And when everyone would say, the Catholic Church. So that the church has been blamed for the lack of scholarly interest in Ireland low these many years. Yeah, not, not the first thing it's been blamed for over there. Um, yeah, no, it's interesting because, yeah, there is a, you know, uh, there's quite a famous uh, recording of uh, kind of anti-jazz sentiment from the Catholic Church. And uh, I think there's been documentaries on the national broadcaster. Uh -huh. and, uh, yeah, so there's kind of a little bit of a history between jazz and the, and the Catholic Church. Yeah, so I guess, you know, moving on from that, maybe before we talk about your actual keynote from the conference, it would be good to maybe... Maybe just reflect back briefly on, you know, the two edited volumes that you, you worked on, you know, back in the mid-90s, uh, representing jazz and jazz among the discourses, um, especially because, you know, your keynote referred specifically to one of those titles, your keynote was representing jazz in the 21st century. Um, and I'd just be curious to get your thoughts on the, their kind of enduring place in the academic study of jazz, you know, so I guess they were published in 1995, if that's correct. Um, and I guess they were kind of conceived initially as far back as 1990. So I wonder, are there, um, you know, maybe there's a particular reading in, in one of those collections that you still come back to, or if there's anything in there that you feel remains particularly current or relevant today? Well, I had been thinking about moving jazz into a more theoretical landscape, shall we say, and a much more interdisciplinary landscape. For some time, in fact, I did a panel at the Modern Language Association, the, you know, the biggest uh, uh, organization for literary studies. And every year they would meet, and um, there would be you know hundreds and hundreds of people attending, thousands attending. And one year they met in New Orleans. That was in 1988, and I thought I saw my opening, so I did a panel uh, called Storyville Stories, and it was mostly about jazz and literature, of course. But from there, I began meeting people. And I think that, and, and, and little by little, the idea for bringing these people together, they were in history departments, they were in philosophy departments, they were in language departments. Very few were in music departments because they weren't doing the kind of interdisciplinary work I was looking for. And I think what really got me thinking most aggressively about the anthologies was when I ran into Jed Rasula with whom I had gone to graduate school years earlier. And I ran into him at a comparative literature conference. And I told him I had this idea for, you know, theorizing jazz. And he practically handed me immediately out of his briefcase the piece, you know, The Seductive Menace, uh, which I still think is the most, um, if not the most, um, um, the most, surprising entry in the books, certainly the one that's quoted most. When I do, when I read in Jazz Studies, uh, you know, I, several of the articles in that those two anthologies are still being quoted, and they're still selling, by the way. I still get a tiny royalty check 24 years later. Every year I get a check for a few dollars because people are, are still buying them. But, you know, it seems like Jed Rasula's piece uh, on the, you know, using recording 
as the uh, the, the um, texts around which to write jazz history. That's probably the most often quoted article. Yeah, um, I mean, that's the one for me particularly uh, yeah. that kind of springs to mind as well. Um, you know, at the conference, my own paper was dealing with, uh, you know, recordings and documents of jazz online. Um, and so the Razula's article was in the back of my mind, too. And, you know, I spoke to uh, Gabriel on the on the last day. And obviously that was part of his, his keynote. And he, you know, interestingly said that he is also revisiting it from, you know, from time to time. And every time he gets kind of a little bit something new from it or, or sees something else in it. So, so yeah, that's the one that actually springs, out, springs to my mind as well. And Jed, by the way, is a remarkable person. He's now got some endowed chair in the English department at the University of Georgia. And I've been keeping up. He's a voluminous writer, but almost all, uh, always on literary modernism. He's probably read every single thing, and one, one paragraph in a book by Jed will have at least 12 references to other things. And he still does return to jazz. And the most recent book, I'm not sure if it's out yet, maybe any day now, but there's a chapter called Jazz Bandism, and he's using jazz as a way of thinking about literary modernism. So, I mean, if I were you, I would keep your eye out for his latest publications. Great, yeah, I certainly will, I certainly will. Um, so, so in many ways, those those two edited collections were, um, you know, you weaving your uh, your jazz interest, you know, into your academic, you know, your academic practice, actually, um, and maybe that kind of, you know, weaving weaving your interest into your writing, uh, I think, is also evident in maybe you know uh, hotter than that, you know, your book about the the trumpet uh, in you know American culture, um, and uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed that book and. Uh, I, I just, when, in reading it, I kind of perceived that it was maybe like, a, you know, a fun project or kind of a labor of love for you because it seems to, you know, obviously you have an interest in the trumpet as an in instrument um, and you, you know, you kind of, you explain the history of the trumpet a little bit. There is, you know, situating the trumpet in American musical culture and jazz. And then there's also an element of kind of autoethnography in it where you're, you're kind of, you're kind of linking your own experience of, of revisiting the instrument or being kind of, you know, an amateur uh, jazz trumpeter and kind of weaving that into the story as well, which is quite fun. It's quite nice. Well, let me tell you how that happened. Uh, that book was pitched to me by a literary agent. Uh, I had written something uh, in a, um, uh, the, it's called The Chronicle of Higher Education, where a lot of people from uh, disciplines in academia try very hard to write for a larger audience of academics you know so that when i when i wrote for the chronicle of higher education i was hoping that a biologist could understand what i was talking about so you really do try to make your 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 prose as jargon free and as accessible as possible so there's a literary agent in new york who cruises those kinds of periodicals looking for academics who can cross over uh, to a, a larger book market. So she called me out of the blue, and she asked me what I was writing on at the moment. And at that moment, I was seriously contemplating a book about Miles Davis. And this woman, who's about my age, and is uh, an author of sports stories for children. She writes, you know, several books every year, little short books, you know, for children about sports. So when I said Miles Davis, she said, who's that? <laughs> 
And so once I told her who Miles Davis was, she said, well, who came before Miles Davis? So, you know, after about two or three minutes explaining, you know, what the, the, the who preceded Miles Davis, she said, it sounds to me as if your Miles Davis project is part of a larger book, which is a cultural history of the trumpet. And what she had in mind, and this is like, you know, this is 15 years ago now, she was looking at one of, at those micro histories, which were kind of a rage in, in trade presses, going back to a book by a man named Mark Kurlansky called Cod, the fish, Cod. And if you read that book, he's able to suggest that the entire, there's some huge portion of Western civilization is built around cod. The United States, America was discovered by cod fishermen. The first frozen food that many Americans ate was cod. The first fish many Americans ate was cod. There were wars fought over cod. You know, and then she, so it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating book and it was, it was a bestseller. So in the wake of cod, you had a book called Rats, you had a book called Coal, you had a book called Salt. Again, all of them sort of rewriting world history on this one little thing. And I think that's what my agent had in mind. I'm not sure she was totally satisfied because I took the book into different you know, path, pathways. I talked more about jazz. I did the, as you say, autoethnography. Uh, but uh, it really was a, a, a pleasure uh, to write it. Uh, it gave me a chance to you know, really try to write for a larger audience. And, I, and to this day, people who have no academic connection at all will email me out of the blue and tell me you know, how much they enjoyed the book. This does not happen with any of my academic books. No, uh, no, no lay person has ever written me out of the blue and said, gee, I really liked that jamming at the margins. I really liked your way of theorizing the jazz trumpet, you know, so. So that that really was a pleasure. Yeah, it's you know it's the irony you know your most detailed work you know slips into yeah. these kind of niche areas, but the one you'll be remembered for is you know the, the kind of your, right. your cultural history of the trumpet. Um, great. Um, yeah. So I guess you know moving moving from there onto the the keynote from the conference. Um, I guess first a general um, kind of question about it, and for listeners, I guess some people who listen will have been at the conference, um, but others won't have been. So I mean. I guess what I took away from it was you were kind of primarily focused on modes of representing jazz today, um, you know, so in the 21st century, and you gave examples from film and literature, etc. Um, so maybe you could, if you could give a kind of brief overview of it before we went into more details. Yeah. Well, well, I began, you know, trying to update the material in the volume Representing Jazz, which came out in 1995. And you know, there's there's a chapter on jazz and painting, and there's several chapters on jazz and literature and jazz and film. So I thought, you know, what have we seen in the 21st century in these last 18 years? And I came up with a fairly long list of movies and novels, and uh, TV shows and video games. Uh, you know, there's a huge industry now um, in video games. Not only that, but there's academic programs. The woman who helped me put together a list of video games with jazz content is a former graduate student who is now teaching at New York University, and she's in a department of seven people, all of them teaching video games from in one way or another. So when I told her I was doing this project for the Dublin conference, she got on Twitter and notified the people in her Twitterverse, and within minutes, she had this long list 
of films, of, of video games with jazz content. So what I was looking for were themes and you know conventions and ways that seemed to be um, consistent. And a number of things came to me very quickly. Most obviously, atmosphere. You know, jazz is always a good place. A jazz venue is always a good place for a crime scene, <laughs> you know? or, or for a romantic encounter, or for a gangster encounter. You know, you see that over and over again, even in the 21st century. And of course, that goes all the way back. Then um, nostalgia. More, more now than, than 50 or 60 years ago, jazz is something that represents a better world, a better life, a time when you just went dancing with your girl, and there was nothing more complex than that. The best example of that is a movie that came out, I think, in the 1970s called Save the Tiger, and Jack Lemmon is a businessman who's going, who's losing his money, and he decides the best way is just to burn down the factory that he owns, and and collect the insurance money. And he does it in a really sloppy way. People are injured, and he 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 seems to have escaped imprisonment. Uh, but the film ends with him listening to Bunny Berrigan's "I Can't Get Started." And on a couple of other occasions in the film, you'll just see him with this look of satisfaction and relaxation. Everything is okay. And he listens to Benny Berrigan singing, I Can't Get Started. And the film ends with him really having done terrible things, but being able to, to, to get past it with the nostalgia of that. So I've got, I've got, I've got atmosphere, I've got nostalgia. And then another one, another way of thinking about jazz in terms of its representation was what I called transcendence, where either the musician himself or herself sort of leaves the body or has this kind of, uh, you know, a, a spiritual experience, or the listeners to the music have this extraordinary experience. Uh, to me, the most elegant example of that is the end of Sonny's Blues by James Baldwin, where the school teacher narrator, who's kind of baffled by his, uh, his younger brother, who wants to play like Charlie Parker, and he's driving the family crazy because he's going back and forth between the record player and and his and his piano, and he listens to a little bit on the record, and goes and plays it on the piano, and then goes back and listens, and everyone just thinks he's crazy until the very end when our narrator goes to a club and he hears Sonny performing with other musicians and he gets it. He really hears what Sonny is doing and he realizes that Sonny is in touch with the whole history of his family and he can think about his their, their mother and their uncle who was run over by a car, you know, and there was and there was hit and run and no one was ever caught and all of that is coming back to him as he listens to his brother play the piano. So then the, the, the fourth and fifth categories, I'm thinking if I keep on working on this panel, I'm gonna collapse. One of them, I'm gonna collapse them. One of them was, was called Exotica and Esoterica, and the other was called Outsider Weirdness. And the best example of Outsider Weirdness was Sun Ra. Uh, and I'm thinking particularly of the movie Space is the Place, 
which was really a kind of a bizarre hybrid of genres. And, and um, Sun Ra is literally an all-powerful space alien, you know? And his music is, represents, you know, what do people listen to on Saturn, you know? Uh, but uh, probably a better way of thinking about it is exotica and esoterica, just the idea that jazz is out there. Most people have no idea what's going on. And uh, the, the best example I came up with for, for that, for jazz in the 21st century, was a TV series that just finished its third season. It's on the AMC network in the United States. I'm guessing you'll get it on Hulu or Netflix or one of those services if you haven't already got it uh, in Europe and the UK. But the program is called Preacher. And it is about a man who is a former criminal, but for whatever reason, he goes to work preaching the gospel in a little Texas town. And for, again, for bizarre reasons, he is possessed by a spirit that gives him superpowers. And they, they found out very quickly that all of this is possible, that he has now got these superpowers because God has taken time off. God is no longer doing what God is supposed to do. So using reliable theological evidence, our heroes go in search of God, and they find him in a strip club in New Orleans. And the, they find out, they assume that God has gone to the strip club because he has a favorite girl. There's a girl he come, keeps coming back for. So there's a moment when the woman who runs the place and has been watching God come and go says, you idiot, God doesn't come here for the girls. He comes for the jazz. And our hero goes, jazz? Because there's no suggestion. This, is, this happens well into the second season. There's no suggestion that there's any jazz anywhere. But suddenly, after we have been told God likes jazz, we hear this trio, and it's actually uh, real, New Orleans magician, um, real New Orleans musicians, including Tony DeGrady uh, on, uh, on saxophone, uh, and they, they obviously went on location to film them. And they're playing good old straight-ahead bebop. But let's face it, good old straight-ahead bebop is hardly the music of the masses. And the, the, uh, our heroes are kind of baffled that this is God's music. And for a long time I thought, well, maybe God likes jazz because it does have that spiritual quality. Transcendence is possible. And maybe because black people, according to all of the silly conventions that we live with, somehow black people are closer to God and this is their music. And so I'm thinking about this all through the second season. But when the third season begins, the third, I think, what was the final season of this program, Preacher, God actually appears in the show. We just heard about him. But in the third season, we meet him, and he's a trickster. He's a con artist. He's a bullshit artist. And I'm beginning to think maybe the jazz connection is because of that long history of tricksters you know, that we associate with jazz, and that, that God is someone who has been toying 
you know, with us all these years, leaving us in this terrible mess, and then going off and hanging out with biker chicks. We twice see God with different, you know, women who are perfectly happy to ride on the back of a motorcycle. So, so God, the trickster, has played this huge joke on mankind and is now off enjoying himself, listening to jazz and riding motorcycles. <laughs> yeah, that that was one of a, a number of really really excellent examples. I think in the talk there was, you know, I mean, I guess it was important, you know, at the conference to to hear, you know, your ideas and situate them with the examples. So we we did get to see that that clip from Pete Preacher that you were talking about. Um, and I haven't seen the show, but I'm I'm definitely going to check it out after seeing that. It was it was quite interesting. Yeah, it's it's uh, actually kind of fun. <laughs> I recommend it. Yeah, we'll check it out. So the five kind of themes, the categories you've broken them down into, it was, it was a- atmosphere, um, nostalgia, transcendence, uh, esoterica, and kind of outsider weirdness. Is that, yeah. is that correct? Yeah, that, that's what I did. In, yeah. but I, I'm, I think, I'm thinking that outsider weirdness and exotica are, are closely related enough that I can put those into one category. The other category, which I didn't establish but which is out there. And uh, um, um, I, I was just looking at your Django Reinhardt stuff and uh, watching this, this clip from this, is it a brand new movie about Django, a fiction film about Django? Yeah, it's... Tw- because yeah, what they've done with that is they've put Django into a very familiar narrative uh, of you know people escaping from the Nazis, but also because it's jazz, you also can't help but think about blacks escaping slavery. Mm. And there's even that moment where he says, "I am Django," and you can't help but mm. think uh, of the um, of the Tarantino film uh, Django Unchained. So that here is an example of an accurate moment in jazz history, which has been presented within a very familiar situation which may or may not be entirely accurate. So what I was able to come up with, two really interesting novels that insert a fictional character, unlike Django, but a fictional character into an actual legitimate historical narrative. And of the, there's two that I really spent the most time with. One was called um, Oh, Play That Thing, by the Irish novelist Roddy Doyle. And uh, the Irishman, Henry Smart, who's caught up in the troubles in the 1920s in Ireland, leaves, ends up in Chicago, and ends up becoming a kind of confidant, bodyguard, companion to Louis Armstrong. And he really did his research. So, you know, Roddy Doyle is giving you a totally accurate historical account of Louis Armstrong, except you have this character who interacts with him and with King Oliver and with the gangsters and with Lil, his wife. He's, he's mixed in with the whole story. The other novel, and, and both of these novels are recent from the 21st century. The other one is an American novel called Telegraph Avenue uh, by Michael Shaban. And he creates a character I think probably based on uh, Dr. Lonnie Smith, the turbaned uh, organ player, um, plays the MP3, plays the M, what is the, what do you call that organ? The organ, the jazz, that... that um, the Hammond, Hammond organ? Yeah, the Hammond B3. Hammond B3, mm. that's what you call it, right? Yeah, J- Jimmy mm. Smith plays it. So, 
in the novel, you have a character named Cochise Jones who plays the Hammond B3. And he, he's not even a major character. He dies very early in the novel trying to unload his organ from the back of a pickup truck. And the organ falls on him and kills him. But later on in the novel, one of the characters is listening to one of Cochise Jones' records. Now, again, there is no Cochise Jones. There are no records. But as far as the novel is concerned, Cochise Jones recorded in the early 1970s for the CTI label, and he has Idris Muhammad on bass. And, and he's, so he's narrating. Oh, and the, and the song that he's recorded is from Jesus Christ Superstar, I Don't Know How to Love Him. So we have the, one of the characters listening to the record, and he says, and at one point, the patented Creed Taylor strings entered. <laughs> and you immediately think about all those CTI records and those kind of schlocky string orchestrations that some of them had. And then he, you know, he, he describes the rest of the record, and it's, it's totally fascinating because you really can't imagine that record having been made in the early 1970s by a guy who would have, would have hired these really hip side, side men and played the Hammond B3 and worked in the strings from Creed Taylor. So, that I mean, I'm looking for more like that, and I'm, I'm really glad you turned me on to this John Go Reinhardt movie because it sort of fits that description of, you know, how do you insert, how do you mix fiction with accurate history? Mm, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and it's funny, I, I think depictions of Django Reinhardt are, are quite interesting because they're, they're they all, even the Charles Delaunay biography of him, uh, as someone who knew him, they, they still kind of, um, they pick up on these kind of, you know, caricatures of him as well. They, they're the kind of moments that get emphasized. Um, so there's all, always this kind of dissonance with representing him in something. And that, that happens in, you know, in this film as well. I yeah, think. yeah. Okay, so I'm really looking forward to it. Is it, is it, is it out in France now? Yeah, yeah, it's been out since, uh, I think, last year, 2017, oh, good. I think. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's good. It's worth checking out for sure. I will, I will um, track it down. Yeah. Um, actually, interestingly, to Roddy Doyle, because you mentioned uh, the Roddy Doyle book. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the movie The the Commitments. Yeah, yeah, sure. You can see yeah. that kind of fascination he has with, with black music and, uh, and yeah, you know, the, exactly. the cultures of black music. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of, I mean, that's obviously more um, blues and, and R&B and, and soul and things. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's another kind of parallel as well. Yeah, the, um, the, 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 the Irish, they're, they're Irish, right? The, yeah, the, exactly. uh, the, the singing group, and they say, you know, we're the persecuted blacks of Ireland. So let's sing exactly. the music of persecuted blacks. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a great movie. It's a classic movie in Ireland. So actually, just going back to some of the other themes. I mean, there were, there were so many examples in the in the in the keynote. One or two of them, which were quite interesting. I mean, for transcendence, uh, if I recall correctly, you showed the drum solo scene from Whiplash, and of course, Whiplash being kind of contentious, I guess, among jazz fans. I mean, some people like it, some people hate it. But it was an interesting example of transcendence. I think is how you put it for that. You know, it was the the ecstatic moment of the drum playing, but also the cinematic effects, you know, the slowing down of time, you know, in contrast with the high tempo drum solo. And that was an interesting example as well. Is that is that how you framed that? Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, the, the sound actually drops out. You know, the camera goes in and we see this guy in his drum solo. And of course, it's not the kind of drum solo that Joe Jones would take. You know, this is part of the argument we have with this film, that it glorifies a particular type of show-off jazz drumming. 
uh, and it also glorifies a particular kind of big band jazz that you associate with Buddy Rich and Maynard Ferguson and some of Woody Herman, where it's all this kind of military precision, you know, you know, intense, fast uh, big band band jazz, as opposed to you know the the more laid back stuff. You know, think of Basie playing Neil Hefty, and think of Joe Jones just sort of. You know, smiling and just sort of tossing off an occasional rim shot. But at any rate, our hero is so immersed in his playing that he we no longer hear it. It's it's we just see him playing, and as you say, it slows down, and it's almost as if you know he's in another place. And this is using the techniques of the cinema to represent a state which presumably jazz musicians can enter when they're really in the moment, in the spirit, uh, you know, playing beyond their, you know, and not even, not even aware of what they're playing. You know, jazz improvisers will tell you that they never really think ahead. They always know what the next note will be, but they don't know what the next phrase will be. And it's, and it's always happening where, where they're almost, unco- it's almost coming out of the unconscious. So, you know, all of those things are worked into what the filmmaker is trying to do in Whiplash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting as well. And like another one of the examples that worked quite well, I guess there would be a bit of a spoiler alert because I think it's towards the end of the film, but um, I think it was for nostalgia. Uh, you gave the Tom Hanks movie The Terminal as an oh, example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, in that, in that film, uh, Tom Hanks plays a character from an Eastern European country which ceases to exist while Tom Hanks is in the airplane coming over. So he ends up in the, in the hangar, or in the, I'm sorry, in the terminal, and he's not allowed out because he doesn't have a valid passport. So it's a pretty preposterous film. But at one point we discover that he has come to New York to get the signature of one of the musicians in that famous Harlem 1958 photograph of the 57 jazz musicians standing in front of the Harlem Brownstone. And he's, somehow his father had managed to get all of their signatures but one. <laughs> so he has come to New York for that. And of course, uh, uh, it's, it, it adds an extra level of gravitas to this whole, I mean, I would say Oedipal, uh, project of trying to please your father, even though the father is dead. But again, it's 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 making jazz into something from a distant time, and you can recapture a little bit of that magic. And of course, for me, it's kind of perfect that that 1958 photograph should be the source of this quest on which our hero goes. Because if you look at that photograph today, it's just over overflowing with nostalgia and say, oh my God, you know, th- you know, there's Lester Young. On the other hand, if you saw that photograph in 1958, you would say, oh my God, you know, th- there's, uh, uh, you know, um, I'm trying to think of some, one of the older guys, there's uh, um, um, the, the, the drummer, uh, who is that, the, the, uh, uh, Sid Catlett. Sid Catlett's in there, you know, and by 1958, Sid Catlett was already a part of nostalgia. So the the, the amount of nostalgia that Spielberg is able to squeeze out of this situation is kind of amazing. And and that nostalgia is kind of a big thing about it, isn't it? It's kind of, that's that's how, 
that's how these kind of contemporary bits of literature or film are kind of representing the past, actually, by using these kind of quite dated or previous or early versions of kind of jazz, I think, which is why I think the examples of the video games were particularly interesting because the video games, you know, were, you know, hyper modern, really, really high production values. And yet again, of course, these tropes of, uh, of, of detectives uh, in the kind of noir noir kind of vibe are there in this kind of jazz club and you know that that was that was kind of a really interesting example and as you mentioned that was one of your maybe your previous grad students I think you said who had kind of brought those to your attention but they're I think they're a really standout example of, of this you know yes. in today in the in the present yeah I mean we've still got it and and video games would be the place you'd find it where they're trying to find new ways of presenting some very familiar tropes, not to mention just the game. You know, so the Super Mario Brothers. We all we've all know Super Mario Brothers. So how do you do a new edition of that? Well, you bring in a jazz band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very very interesting. Um, and actually, there's a kind of a, I guess sort of rock and pop journalist Simon Reynolds, um, who's got a book called Retromania. And actually, one of the things he talks about is um, is the 21st century's popular music's fixation with the past. You know, that, that this, this kind of happens a lot if you think of uh, British singers like, uh, you know, Duffy or Adele or Amy Winehouse. You know, while they're singing in the 21st century, there's, you know, there's a real state of anachronism here. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's contemporary, but it's all rooted in the past, you know, and this kind of nostalgia, this kind of nostalgia mode. And, and, and Scott DeVoe uh, has a, a... When Scott DeVoe teaches his big jazz history course, at the University of Virginia. Um, and when he gets to 1968, and of course, here you have, if you want to, want to think of jazz history as starting in 1917, we're 100 years into it. And right smack dab in the middle of that 100 years is when Miles Davis plugs in. And from then on, you have jazz rock. And so Scott says that the, that the, um, the normal timeline of jazz has to be, uh, has to be, a, a, a trifecta. <laughs> so you've got, you can say, jazz dies, and Wynton Marsalis comes along a few years later and, and turns the narrative around. Instead of a narrative going into the future, now the narrative is looking back. So now, rather than creating new music, we're just re recapitulating Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington and Dizzy Gillespie. That's one narrative. A second narrative would be jazz has continued, but it's for a much, much smaller audience, and it's happening in lofts, in East Village clubs, in tiny clubs throughout Europe, where the avant-garde that began in the 60s is being, is being played out. The third narrative, which you're talking about, is jazz is still is everywhere. It's just now been um, assimilated into other music. So not only do you have jazz rock, you know, weather report from the 1970s, but you're right, you've got Amy Winehouse, you know, channeling Dinah Washington and Billie Holiday. Not, not, although, if you don't know that, you just hear a contemporary singer. But, but jazz purists can tease out those influences in all of these uh, people who are making music today, even if they don't identify as jazz musicians. Mm -hmm. For sure, yeah, for sure. Um, I guess... That kind of covers like most of the the kind of topics and the examples you um you you gave at the at the keynote. I guess kind of deriving if if I kind of if I grasped the whole thing quite well, I think um I think that that was kind of your thesis as well is that you know many of these uses of jazz in the twenty first century are still rooted in the twentieth century. Well, the one thing I uh, tried, you, you know, my, if I had a thesis, it was that 
yes, we have a number of associations that go back to the 20th century, but we've lost a lot of them. And that's why I showed at the end of my talk, I showed a few minutes from the Benny Goodman story uh, from 1955. I think that's the perfect 20th century jazz film. Every stupid notion about jazz is in it, including the idea that young Benny Goodman, who's never heard, uh, never heard jazz before, hears Kid Ori's band on a riverboat. And he says, say, you've got a style of it all of your own, don't you boys? You know, and, and Kid Ori says, it ain't nothing special. It's just Dixieland. These guys can't even, he points to his musicians, these guys can't even read music. They just play what they feel. And Benny goes, play what you feel. I get it. Here, let me join in. And he picks up his clarinet and becomes an accomplished improviser on the spot. You know, and, and of course the idea is that Benny, that, that any black or Creole person can just sort of pick up an instrument and play this music. But it takes someone like Benny Goodman to really figure it out. And, you know, as the film goes on, he has way, he's way surpassed his black mentors. You know, so that kind of stuff, <laughs> that kind of stuff is really less and less likely to appear in the 21st century. So a, a lot of myths from the 20th century, a lot of them continuing into our century, and a lot of them have dropped out. Mm, yeah. Um, and then I guess, I guess maybe finally then, um, as a more kind of speculative kind of question, so I guess going back to the two uh, edited collections, you know, they were quite speculative in a way, kind of drawing in, you know, I mean, other people were kind of picking up on this curve at the time as well, but you were drawing in lots of different disciplinary perspectives. I mean, could you, could you speculate forwards from here? You know, do you think there are other future trends or future approaches to the academic study of jazz that we will see in the coming years? Yeah, I mean, the, most, the thing that I find most interesting about jazz studies is what I would call songs of the unsung. And I'm referring both to an, uh, an autobiography by Horace Tapscott, as well as an article that was published about 15 years ago by George Lipsitz, also called Songs of the Unsung. And it's about small cultures of jazz, not necessarily in New York and not necessarily even in the United States. Horace Tapscott dropped out of touring with Lionel Hampton and formed a kind of community of jazz musicians in Los Angeles around Central Avenue, that very active place uh, for jazz in, in, in New Orleans. And the story of how a community forms around the music and how they're giving concerts, they don't care who comes, they don't care if they make any money, this is just what they do, they love the music that's got that spiritual element. And the, the defining anecdote for Horace Tapscott is when a panhandler to whom he would give a quarter on the street and whom he only knew as a guy to whom he occasionally gave a quarter, that guy says to Horace Tapscott, where's our band playing tonight? And by saying our band, it was, it was again the sense of the community owned the band and everyone was a part of it. So I, 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 you know, I see a lot more interesting stories like that. I see stories about jazz in Eastern European countries and Asian countries. And then my good friend Tony Whiten did a wonderful paper that's now published in that uh, the latest proceedings of the Darmstadt Conference. It's called Jazz at 100. Um, seeking new, uh, 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 something beyond jazz heroes. I forget the title, but it came, came out, of, out of the concert, the uh, 
that came out of the conference in Darmstadt, Germany, uh, about a year and a half ago. And Tony discovered he's got an uncle or a, or a great a, a grandfather or something who was a working saxophone player in the 20s and 30s. And he played jazz, but he also played everything else. And one of his relatives has got this archive. And he can, he can use that archive to see what the life of a, a, of a regular performing jazz artist would have been like in England in the 1930s and 1940s. And, um, uh, you know, we've never, no one's ever heard of this guy. We only know about it because of Tony. But jazz history needs, jazz studies needs these micro-histories of characters we have no idea about. But what did they play? For whom did they play? How did they feel about it? What did they wear? I mean, all of those things are filling out this history of jazz that is now emerging from the academy. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think I see that as well. You know, the the early jazz studies has, you know, has done its work in kind of canonizing the greats. And yeah, I think these kind of micro histories are more and more a part of the study of jazz. And that was even evident at the conference as well. I think um, Alicia Ward's uh, um, case study of early jazz in New Zealand stands out to me as another comparable example of that. But yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I guess I think that's kind of everything I wanted to kind of just touch on, just to kind of get an, an overview of your keynote. So I guess uh, I'll just thank you for your time. And uh, you know, it was great to talk to you. And I really enjoyed your, your, your talk at the conference. Nice talking to you. Have a, have a great weekend. Okay. So continuing on from Crin's final thoughts on the hidden histories of jazz, we move on to our interview with Alicia Ward. Alicia Ward is a 2017 Douglas Lilburn Research Fellow and a recipient of the 2018 Ministry of Culture and Heritage New Zealand History Research Trust Award, investigating the jazz age in New Zealand. She was one of the first graduates of the Bachelor of Music jazz program at the University of Auckland, holds a Master of Arts degree in Jazz History and Research from Rutgers University in 2006, where her thesis was on the early history of jazz flute, and a PhD in music from the University of Auckland, where she researched jazz in New Zealand from 1920 to 1955. Alicia is an award-winning writer and is a freelance historian, researcher, editor, lecturer in music history, and tutor in writing and research skills. So again, here our conversation with Alicia links back to her presentation at the Documenting Jazz Conference. Alicia's conference paper focused and kind of discussed this hidden history of, uh, of jazz in New Zealand, particularly around uh, the band leader Epi Shalfoon. In her conversation, Alicia mentions the archives where you can see the videos discussed, and you can find the links to those in the show notes available on the website. I've also added in a little excerpt from the music. A lot of the added value to this is actually the video that goes along with the music, which Alicia discusses in, uh, in our conversation. And so I would definitely encourage you to go and check that out as well. Really good to catch up with you after meeting you at the Documenting Jazz Conference in Dublin. I really enjoyed your paper, so it's kind of great to kind of link up with you again to have a, a little chat about that, I guess, more informally. There were several really interesting threads about your uh, paper, uh, for me anyway. I mean, themes of authenticity and identity, um, you know, historiography, uh, things about early jazz and sound and film. And I guess we'll touch on some of those as we kind of talk along. But 
maybe in the in the first instance you could kind of like introduce the subject of your paper from the conference so basically um, this paper is about the first record first locally made recording of jazz in New Zealand so um, the recording industry in New Zealand didn't actually really get started until the late 1940s. Uh, before that, in the 30s and early 40s, you had recording um, done by radio um, stations, but there wasn't actually a recording industry. Anyone who really wanted to record went across to Australia because they had recording studios, and that's where all the records were um, pressed as well. So um, this jazz recording is actually quite different. Instead of being a normal recording on record, it was on film instead, and in 1930. So it's very, very early in terms of sound on film technology as well. So it's a very unique sort of introduction to local recording for jazz musicians. And so I guess uh, for those listening, I mean, for me, when I, when I heard your paper, obviously that was probably my first encounter ever with New Zealand jazz. <laughs> So that was very interesting in its own right, you know, it's yeah. kind of moving us away from the canon of all the established yeah. greats that we're all familiar yeah. with and kind of locating something new, something different for us all. So um, I guess, you know, the subject of the paper was uh, Ellie Shalfoon and his Melody mm -hmm. Boys. So maybe you can kind of, um, you know, tell us about Ellie Shalfoon and, and the group. So Epi Shalfoon, um, he was a Maori Syrian band leader from a little place called Apotiki, uh, which is on the east coast of the North Island of New Zealand in the place called the Bay of Plenty. Um, he got his start in um, jazz, well I mean comes from a reasonably musical family anyway and music was very important to his family um, and he started just playing in dance bands as a teenager and got into jazz through that essentially. So he you know was hearing early jazz records and hearing early jazz on the radio because in New Zealand you could listen to the radio overseas very easily in the 20s and 30s, not enough interference to cut through and everything. So he was hearing bands from the US, particularly from the west coast of the US and um, also from Australia and around Southeast Asia and everything. So that's basically how he got into it. Um, and then he decided, hey, I can do this myself. So he started up a band, the Melody Boys. All of his bands were always called the Melody Boys. So from 1925, with the first iteration of the Melody Boys until his death in the 1950s, they were all called Epi Shelfoon and his Melody Boys. Very easy to remember. So he started out with um, some of his brothers and some of his friends. Um, they formed a band and they started gigging around Apotiki and the other little um, uh, towns around um, the Bay of Plenty. Um, so they, they just sort of started out doing you know, your usual Saturday night dances and doing the normal dance repertoire of waltzes and foxtrots and all that and throwing a little bit of jazz in. And then it just sort of built on there. So by 1930, they'd moved their base to Rotorua, which is in the centre of the North Island. And that made it very easy for them to actually tour further away. So they were touring um, from... Uh, basically as far north as Auckland in the, uh, the north of the North Island and as far south as Wellington which is our capital which is at the bottom of the North Island and um, so they, they just gained pace they, they built up a, a large repertoire and they would just tour almost constantly 
So as part of that, um, obviously you have to do a lot of advertising, saying where you are going to be in any given week, and advertising is expensive, particularly newspaper advertising. So they decided um, they'd been invited to do a, a, a little, or rather, they were invited by the tourism board to provide on-screen music for a, a little film about Rotorua and, you know, all of its natural and wonderful attractions for the tourism board. So as part of that, they were given the opportunity to actually make a film of their own. And Epi being an absolute amazing entrepreneur and businessman, he thought that's the thing. This will be a really good way of advertising the band, you know, ahead of where we're going to be. And it will save a lot of money in the long run doing newspaper advertising. So that's how the setup came about. Um, they'd done this tourism board um, uh, film, and uh, then a few days later, they did this film, um, which is a one-minute-long, essentially a music video, a very early music video of the band. So yeah, I think uh, when you gave the paper, you showed both videos. I think you definitely showed one of them. Did you, did you show both I, of them? I, I, I showed the I showed the their video, but I didn't have the tourism board one, which is yeah. um, it, you can find that on Nataonga. So um, if you wanted to um, Google that, so Nataonga Sound and Vision in New Zealand has all the um, archival films from the tourism board, as does New Zealand on screen. Um, and yeah, it's um, it's a little bit shocking because they had them get all done up as uh, quote-unquote Arawa Braves in blackface and in traditional Māori costume. Now we're talking about a band that is part Māori or full Māori for the most part. There were a couple of uh, Pākehā white musicians in there, but they were mostly people of colour. So doing blackface in 1930 is pretty shocking really. Mm, um, yeah. uh, and it's not the last film that they had to do blackface for either. But in their own film, they're just dressed normally. Um, white shirts, dark trousers, sort of open neck collars, that sort of thing. Uh, just your normal average work-a-day type of clothing. Um, and, and that is it's much more normal presentation. Yeah, yeah, so they're, they're presenting the band as they would have actually presented it rather than um, exactly. this kind of contrived twist yeah. Uh, yeah. Kind of presentation. Yeah, and you can you can find that online actually. So I would definitely encourage anyone listening to go and um, and check out the the presentation of the Melody Boys. Um, it's really it is a really interesting uh, piece of footage actually, as mm. you kind of pointed out, a really great historical document to show you know a band at this point in the 1930s absolutely um, playing you know a version of jazz from New Zealand. Yeah, um, but it's also it's also quite interesting um, because as you said in the presentation, they're they're playing what sounds jazz, but the repertoire. Is a different kind of thing. It's kind of more associated with the local musical traditions. It is. So um, to New Zealanders um, in the interwar period, jazz was so many different things. And because New Zealanders could hear so far and so wide on the radio, we were hearing a lot of different iterations of jazz. So we were hearing jazz of course, from the United States, but we were also hearing iterations of jazz from Australia and iterations of jazz from the British colonies throughout Southeast Asia, basically as far as Shanghai and Tokyo. So there were all these different versions of jazz going around just on the radio. And then there's vaudeville jazz. So all the you know vaudeville jazz acts that came on the red line tours and everything, 
again, it's all very different. They're all coming from different places. And then on top of that, you've got newspaper articles purporting to tell you where jazz actually comes from. And some of these are truly weird. Um, the strangest one I ever saw was from the Evening Post in 1932. Um, and it stated outright that Beethoven was the inventor of jazz, and you could tell this because of certain aspects in some of his string quartets. He used jazz rhythms in one of his quartets, and he uses particular chords that sounded jazzy and things like that. So New Zealanders, with all this information, but no real certainty, were terribly confused about what jazz actually, actually was, as opposed to what people were telling them it actually was. So jazz repertoire to a New Zealander could be anything and anything. So it could be any piece of music and you jazzed it. You applied jazz effects. So the novelty animal sounds, the talking mutes, um, you applied syncopation, jazz rhythms, uh, you played instruments in odd and wonderful ways using anything from you know, like tin cans or upside down bows on a violin, all those sorts of things. So the real novelty stage type of jazz but at the same time of course it was also dance music so what happened with all of those influences is that um, New Zealand just just started using all sorts of music for jazz so yes there was like the the what we would now call proper jazz repertoire, the standards like Honeysuckle Rose, Sweet Georgia Brown, all of those sorts of tunes. And there was all the dance music that was coming through, all the popular dance music of the day, all the waltzes and foxtrots and one steps and two steps and so on that were coming through the Broadway shows and reviews and vaudeville and all of that. And um, they'd also just started using, you know, light classical music and jazzing it. So something like Scheherazade and swinging it. <laughs> um, but they also decided to use local material. So Australian and New Zealand um, composed popular songs, and in particular in New Zealand, Maori popular songs and traditional songs. So these were all parts of our jazz repertoire, um, and it, um, it all just sort of melded together and became jazzy. So yeah, I guess you start to get like a, a New Zealand a New Zealand version of jazz, you know, this kind of local repertoire, and like you said, all the, the, you know, the novelty effects and the instrumentation and performance practices of jazz. Yeah. But the, the, the song in question here is quite interesting as well. So it's got a, mm -hmm. you know, very specific, specific function and cultural reference for, uh, for the Maori composer, right? Can you tell us yes. a bit more about that? So, sure. So the song is Tai Tama'e, and it was written by Kingi Tahibi. Um, he was, a, well, a semi-professional composer. It was sort of like a side gig sort of thing. Um, his day job was he was a law clerk at this point in time when he wrote it and later became a lawyer. Um, and so he wrote the song for a young lady he was courting, Jane Armstrong. Um, and he had a lot of competition from the local farmers, the big strapping lads with very large muscles for her attentions. And of course, he's just a weedy little law clerk. So he wrote her the song to prove to her that he was just as worthy of her attention as these big strapping farmer guys were. And uh, it, it's quite explicit. It's very sexualized. Um, it's a lot of... Uh, 
very specific humour in it as well. Um, basically, um, the crux of it is um, uh, he might not have that many physical muscles, but he had muscles where it counted. And in the last verse, um, there is an ex um, it translates basically as to um, go beyond Otaki, which is the town where they lived, um, to arrange a conclusion. And this is a euphemism for going out to finding a barn and having sex, essentially. <laughs> it did seem to have worked, though, because she did marry him in the end. Very good. Successful outcome. <laughs> and then, and so, but how, how did that tune kind of work its way into their repertoire? Was that, uh, so it's like a... a it was a personal tune, I guess, between uh, the it, people in the story, It right? was, yeah. Yeah, so it was a personal tune initially, but his siblings, um, uh, Hineare, Ferro, and uh, Honeho, um, they had a vocal group, and they went across to Sydney to do some recording, and they needed a little bit of extra repertoire to fill out the sites. So they decided to take this um, very private family song, and then... It became public once they recorded it. And it became an absolute hit in New Zealand. Um, basically, they recorded it in uh, June and July of 1930, and by October it was everywhere in New Zealand. And if we'd had like a hit parade at that point in time, it probably would have been on the hit parade. It was that popular. So, of course, being one of the most popular songs, this made it, uh, in, in New Zealand at that time, this made it, you know, an ideal choice for Epi Shalfoon to actually take and jazz it and make it his own and make it a part of New Zealand jazz repertoire. And would he have been the first person to have been, like, jazzing this tune, or would you think it would have already been kind of circulating in the kind of dance band, jazz band-ish repertoire? That's a good question. I'm not really sure. Um, it's not one that had appeared on um, lists of um, uh, music that was played at gigs um, in the women's columns, because a lot of the women's columns and newspapers actually listed some of the songs that were played at various dances and everything. Mm. But I'm sure he wasn't the only one playing it because it was so popular um, and it's a really good song to dance to so you can dance all sorts of different dances to it, you know, Foxtrot, One Step, Two Step, Three Step, the Charleston, the Black Bottom, you know, the whole range of jazz, social jazz dances from that period, you can dance to the song. So probably other bands were using it as part mm. of their repertoire just because it was such a versatile song. Um, but no one else was recording at that time, so it's very hard to know. Yeah, of course, of course. I guess those mm. are the kind of complexities of you know dealing with very early jazz, um, especially uh, you know in places like New Zealand, for example. Um, but yeah, so I guess this is this is the reason why he recorded that song, right? So because it had this kind of mass popularity. Absolutely. Can, do you have anything to say about how how the song was kind of translated and interpreted in the jazz style? Um, do you think it kind of lent itself well to it or anything about their arrangement that's interesting or any kind of details about the performance? Sure. Um, so the song, um, as it was recorded by the Tahiwis, is quite a bouncy song anyway. Um, it, it's got a good beat to it. So it's, it is something that translates very well into jazz. So, of course, the Tahiwis played it straight. Um, so what Evie Shalfoon did was he 
I like to say he Dixified it. Mm. Um, so he um, changed the rhythms from straight into you know a bouncy swing rhythm. It's not quite ragtime, but it's not quite classic swing. It's sort of that in-between sort of phase of swing. And um, then the arrangement is, um, of course, the Tahiris, this is a, a straight-up vocal arrangement, um, three vocalists and uh, a piano, a bass, and violin, uh, whereas the, uh, the Melody Boys, they had... Um, uh, saxophone, trumpet, tuba, piano, uh, banjo. So you've got a totally different sort of setup, no vocalists. And um, so it was very much done in a New Orleans type of style. So you had the contrapuntal lines, um, clarinet and saxophone, and um, uh, you've got you know, your umpa type of bass with the tuba and the chunk, 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 chunk of the banjo. Mm -hmm. So it's very much in that New Orleans style. Um, and uh, they don't really do a huge amount of improvisation in this. They're mostly just doing sort of an arranged version of it, but it is it sort of gives you the impression that they're doing collective improvisation. It is only a minute long, so there's not that much you can actually do in a minute. Sure. But it's very jazzy. It's become a it's become a jazzed tune. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's totally evident. Mm. Yeah. Maybe this would be a good time to take a quick listen to Epi Shafun and his Maori boys to the to the music from that clip in, in question. Um, you know, I'd certainly encourage all our listeners to go and uh, check out the video as well because that's really um, the kind of added value to this recording. Um, but for now, here's, here's here's the music. Ladies and gentlemen, I wish to introduce to you Rodrigo's famous jazz. <laughs> Another thing that's quite interesting about it, and this is something that you touched on as well, and I guess this goes back to the uh, the, the power of this recorded video as a, a tool for advertising the band. Mm. Um, and at the end, Shalfoon says, um, you know, watch the newspaper. Uh, this band will be playing real dance music in your town soon. Um, and I guess that's kind of when you were talking about the idea of kind of authenticity, jazz authenticity, or, mm. you know, um, kind of legitimizing their music as being real dance music, real jazz. Maybe you could talk a little bit yeah. about that. That's it's quite interesting. Sure. So um, with, with, you know, when he was saying this band will be playing real dance music, it's on two different levels. So it's real dance music as in it's real jazz. It's authentic jazz. It's, this, is jazz this is jazz as you will hear it like on American records and on the radio. This is proper jazz. But he's also um, meaning 
real jazz, real dance music, New Zealand dance music, Maori dance music. So he's making a call to make jazz Maori. Mm. So it has become part of the Maori culture. And that is actually quite a, a thing with Maori culture is that they will adopt types of you know, music and different types of arts and transmute it and bring it into Maori culture and then it makes it Maori mm. rather than it's just something that has got Maori effect to it. Mm. So by choosing a Maori popular song he uh, and by jazzing it, he's made jazz a Maori cultural object as well. So authenticity was, you know, very much a big part of... Um, how he advertised himself, uh, you know, and uh, it was a big selling point for them to be a Maori jazz band, to be um, playing Maori jazz. This was a big selling point in the way that they constructed their identity and the way they sold themselves. Yeah, really interesting. So I guess there's like kind of multi-layers mm. going on there, this, you know, this real yeah. jazz and inverted, comma, inverted commas and then this real Maori dance music. And then I guess um, kind yeah. of an un undertone to that is that the other bands that you're listening to aren't the real deal, you know, which is kind of yes. nice as well. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, songs. it's a counterpoint. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> And so there's there's the other thing uh, that you kind of mentioned as well, I think, which was to do with people performing jazz on film without sound. Mm. You know, they have to exaggerate the kind of performance aspect to kind of signify yeah. it as being jazz. And I guess that's less so the case here. <clears throat> but they are kind of uh, emphasizing their movement. I guess it's, it's an interesting kind of document in terms of um, seeing jazz performed, you know, at this time, it's quite useful as well. Yeah. Um, I guess they don't they don't have to emphasize the movement as much, but it, it is notable. Um, particularly one of the saxophone players, uh, yep. poss possibly Effie himself, <laughs> um, was like very. Yep. very very much so, yeah. I mean, part of that is, you know, uh, we are talking very, very early on in the sound on film technology era. You know, uh, the first sound on film um, newsreel uh, in New Zealand was just at the start of 1930. This was recorded at the end of 1930. So to New Zealand audiences, they were still used to mostly silent films. Only a few theatres really had sound on film technology just because it was expensive they had to either import it which would be in the thousands of pounds which is so much money um, and or they had to literally make it themselves so uh, you know so to New Zealand audiences who are still at this point more used to silent film than film with sound in it those visual cues are actually a very important part to would to how they would identify. Oh, that is a jazz band, or that is a string quartet, or you know that is something else entirely. So those movements, even though you've got the sound there, still had to be present to actually visually identify themselves actually as a jazz band. Mm. Yeah, so it's like the combination of all those elements, the instrumentation, the the performance style. Yeah, so all these elements coming mm. together to identify this new kind of hip thing, I guess. Uh, it's really interesting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and then, I mean, one of the other things that was really wonderful about it was, I guess, the unpredicted outcome, you know, this how how this in some <laughs> way didn't turn out as, as it was intended to, um, and uh, the kind of court, no. court case that ensued. And um, I mean, that this is like, a, I guess, a really wonderful <laughs> source of material for you as a kind of a historian or, you know, um, you know, an academic writing about jazz. This is really great material, but perhaps mm. you can tell us about the, the court case that oh, kind yeah. of ensued around this. 
Absolutely. This is basically my favourite part of this because it's ever so scandalous. <laughs> um, so they, they, they made the film and it went away to be printed and it came back and Effie being Effie and being a businessman, he had done like a whole bit of publicity around the fact that he made this film and um, uh, so he was going to have like a private showing and then it was going to go into the theatres. So all this build up, sort of like, you know, the hype before the um, uh, the prequels to Star Wars. It was that sort of level of hype with him. Uh, and it came back from the printers, and so he had the private showing, and it was terrible. It was absolutely awful. The, the technical quality was just... just horrendous. Uh, so if you look at the video online you will see lots of skips and it's really blurry, you'll hear lots of skips in the audio and that isn't actually from degradation, that is actually how the original film was. You know, the the, the um, archivists at Nataonga actually did try to improve it before they digitized it and they couldn't. So it was really bad. So, you know, all this hype happened, um, and in fact, um, a reporter from the Rotorua Chronicle saw it and was absolutely blown away, but I think this was perhaps one of the first times he'd seen sound on film sure. films, so he was a little bit, you know, yeah. glamoured by it all and everything. Um, so, if he didn't like this, and theatre managers said they couldn't use it, so he decided... No, I'm not going to pay the £28 fee for making this. I mean, £28, that's in the... I don't even know what that would translate into today's money, but it'd probably be in around a 1000 New Zealand dollars, so around £500 in today's currency. So he's going, no, I'm not going to pay this. And so the film company, Filmcraft Limited, decided to sue him. And so a court case ensued in August 1931, and it was reported on very excitedly by um, the tabloid New Zealand Truth. New Zealand Truth is essentially New Zealand's version of The Sun. It's a dreadful tabloid, um, but it's ever so much fun to read. Um, it's you know, a guilty pleasure sort of read, nothing that you'd ever want to admit to reading, ever. Um, and so they came up, they had these wonderfully alliterative headlines. So it was saxophone sobbed out jazz, and then a couple of um, uh, um, subheadings where, you know, Trombone, trombone player's mask was, you know, face was a mask, and if he shellfoon was not shook, and all these sorts of things, and it was um, basically a half-page article detailing, very detailed actually, the court case, going through all the motions, like every little bit of it. So the the prosecutor said this, and the witness said that, and just every last bit of detail you could imagine for a court case. As you can imagine, um, New Zealand Truth's um, stock and trade at that point was divorce cases, so they were well prepared for detailing this sort of court case as well. Uh, so basically, they argued back and forth, and the um, prosecution you know, went through and detailed the making of the film and pointed out where, you know, where things were happening on film. So there's a, a shadow at the front of the film and, uh, from the tree, and that's where the cameraman was standing, and obviously that's where the microphone was and everything. And they came to the conclusion that it was perfectly fine. This was how it was meant to be and everything. So 
every side of it as a painter um, he brings in you know witnesses you know um, theatre managers saying no this is atrocious we can't actually play it and um you know, this could never actually be used in a theatre. It's just too awful. So in the end, the magistrate actually got the band into the court and had them perform as they did on the day, had them perform Airporto Taitama A, exactly as they played it on the day. And he came to the conclusion in the end that what he saw on film was absolutely not representative of what the band was. You know, you can't you can't make out the people's um, faces. You can't make out um, what it says on the bass drum. You can't see it. You know, you can see it's somebody's Melody Boys, but you can't see whose Melody Boys. And what he says, what Ebi says at the start. Um, I give to you Rotorua's famous jazz band. Well, that's what he's supposed to say, but because of the audio skips, I give to you Rotorua's famous jazz and that's it. You you don't know that they're a jazz band. And he doesn't actually say who they are. So all of that combined meant that the magistrate found in Effie Shelfoon's favour and he didn't have to pay the £28 bill, which I'm sure he was very relieved of. But on the other hand, I wonder how much he paid in lawyer's fees after all of that. For sure, for sure. <laughs> but it's, it's such a great little, yeah. uh, little story, you know, and it's, uh, you know, popular culture. It shows that popular culture has always loved, you know, a little bit of controversy and a bit of drama, you know, going back to these 90, 90 years, yeah. no matter where you are in the world, you know. Um, so it's, <laughs> Definitely. So it's, it's, a, it's a great story, and, um, and it's kind of, uh, it has... A very little interesting kind of ending, I guess, in the sense that while the video didn't serve its purpose as a piece of advertising for the band mm. at the time, you know, it's entered, I guess, New Zealand's jazz mythology and jazz lore, you know, as a kind of hidden document and then it, it resurfaces later. And then now, you know, it's kind of, it's here yeah. as an early document of New Zealand jazz. Yeah, yeah. So it basically remained hidden. Uh, it was one of those sort of documents that everyone knew that it had happened, but only a handful of people ever saw it. Um, so it became urban legend. You know, people knew that this had been made, and it, um, the Melody Boys actually made other films after this as well, which were um, seen around and about. So, but this one, this particular one, you know the crux, the you know it's um, the the holy grail, if you will. Um, it was it became an absolute myth, and um, various um, archivists and collectors and researchers heard about it. But it wasn't until the film archive got a copy and digitised it um, in the early two thousands that people could actually see it properly for the first time. So the Film Archive had it up on um, uh, their um, website for several years and, of course, it's made its way to YouTube and everything after that. So it's, it's re it has remained available and it is, uh, you know, for the first time, jazz researchers and popular music and pop culture researchers were actually able to see this and see what was what it all was about and actually how bad it was um, because, you know, we'd heard it was bad but we didn't know just how bad and we can use it in so many different ways. I mean, you know, just as an, uh, an artefact rather of jazz, you know, this is our first jazz recording, you know, we don't, we didn't... 
We don't really know how other jazz bands sounded, but this gives us an idea of how one jazz band sounded at the time. And it gives, an, gives us an idea of repertoire and the makeup of the band and all these other different things around so like the minutiae of jazz and jazz history that we can't tell any other way. Sure, we have reports in newspapers and we have, you know, Artifacts in the, you know, from like um, stock arrangements and people's personal arrangements, and you can see bits and pieces from that. But actually hearing it and watching it is a totally different way of perceiving jazz. And that's, you know, it's just such a, a, a mind blowing experience. The first time I saw that, it was like, oh, goosebumps up my spine because. That was the first time I'd seen really early jazz. Other than that, the earliest jazz I'd really heard was um, bootleg tapes from the 1940s um, of people taping bands off of radio. So this is, you know, 15 years before that. So it was a, just a totally... It was a, you know, a game changer, really, for me as a jazz researcher, hearing it and seeing it and figuring out, oh, this is actually how things were. This is this is, you know, one part that I can actually articulate in terms of an oral history. Yeah, I mean that's that's excellent. I think mm. that's probably a, a great kind of time to finish things up. I mean it's a it's an incredible story. Uh, you know, great kind of uh, historical documents around it from the documents about the court case to the video itself. Um, mm. to your retelling of the history. Um, and it's just another, I guess, piece in the kind of in the big picture of like jazz as a global kind of phenomenon and kind of people receiving and, you know, as you said, kind of, mm. uh, kind of conceptualizing and recontextualizing jazz, you know, this kind of idea of reading it and misreading it and cultural translation, you know, it's yep. got all of these elements. So yeah. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a great little piece of jazz history that you've you mm. kind of uh, spreading the word about. Yeah, I try my best. Um, yeah. I have to say, um, the the funny thing is, is that when I was doing my PhD, what everyone would um, say the moment I said I was um, researching the history of jazz in New Zealand was, wait, there was jazz in New Zealand? <laughs> so yes, there was jazz in New Zealand. We, we've had jazz since 1917, just like the rest of the world. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> so you're, you're spreading the word. Excellent. Yeah. That's kind of it. Um, thanks very much for your time and thanks cool. for kind of sharing the story. I'll, I'll make sure to spread um, the message and I'll share a URL or two with the podcast yep. as well. Um, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Many thanks to Alicia for telling us about her research. I've added some links to the show notes for those of you who want to learn more about Epichalfoon and jazz in New Zealand more generally. Okay, moving on from a time where documentation was a more involved process, we fast forward into the current era where tools for recording audio and video are with us through our digital devices everywhere we go, and then to discuss how that resulting proliferation of technology plays into the world of live music. With that said, the final paper that we will discuss from the conference came from Alan Munchauer. Alan is a special collections librarian and assistant professor at the University of Mississippi. His research interests include American music, 
copyright, improvisation and audience engagement. As a drummer, Alan has performed with Susan Alcorn, Perry Robinson, Steve Swell, Jamie Branch and has an album on Soul Note Black Saint with Nobu Stowe and Badal Roy. Alan's paper, entitled Everything is a World Premiere, The Effect of Mass Documentation on the History of Improvisation, notes the continuing proliferation of portable audio and video recorders and examines how this technology's growth as a device for documentation has been aided by the transformation of digital publishing platforms from social media to YouTube to music sharing sites. Alan's paper highlighted how bootlegs have transformed from being a niche underground culture to being the main form of exposure for many instrumentalists. And today we can think of YouTube as being a prime example of this. Alan's research highlights how the current state of jazz documentation has the potential to upend the traditional model of the performance venue being a place for musical exploration and the ephemerality of improvisation. Further highlighting how modern jazz documentation may stifle or expand the dialogue between performer and audience and how artists are adapting to this new proving ground. As this is an ongoing piece of work, our conversation mainly centred around his methodology and the data that he had collected thus far. We talked a little bit about the ethics and ethos of recording and documenting live shows, and we wrapped things up rather fittingly with a quick chat about his last days in Dublin after the conference visiting the Cobblestone, which is a great traditional Irish music bar north of the Liffey in Dublin, and his experience of social music making in Ireland. Okay, so let's get into the conversation with Alan. It was great to meet you in Dublin and, uh, you know, to have the chance now to chat about your research. So I really enjoyed the paper at the conference, uh, and not, not least because the topic was really current. You know, I thought the work was really situating jazz performance in the period from the beginning of the century and kind of situating it in the kind of changing fortunes of the music industry and the rise of prosumer recording technology and like a new web-based media and sharing platforms. So for me, it was always, and, you know, it really obviously was about documenting jazz in the here and now. Um, so maybe before we kind of get into the details of it, maybe you could tell us what, what drew you to this topic as a kind of research topic. Um, yeah, so um, I think for, primarily, I, you know, I have a big interest in uh, field recording and bootleg collecting. And so I'm naturally drawn to, um, for one, that, that environment and that community that exists around field recording, but also just the concert as uh, a document of, of jazz, really. I think there, at the conference there was quite a bit of talk about, mm. and there's established talk about you know the album being the defining document of jazz. But I'm not trying to argue that. But I feel more uh, attuned to just the live experience, and it's something I identify more with. And then the documentation of a live experience, just like I would gravitate towards, you know, a jazz messenger's live album over a studio album. You know, same sort of thing. I just um, it's a, that in the moment sort of concept and experiencing a whole concert is uh, I'm drawn to that. So naturally, I'm, you know, I'm, I th and a part of that appreciation of the live experience, I think, is analyzing that that uh, dialogue between the audience and the performer, you know, that goes way back. So so that my approach to this paper was I was trying to get a little bit into the how the performers how the musicians conceived of that relationship both with the audience of their music and then that relationship of the role that a documentarian or a, a recorder plays in 
uh, that relationship that between the two, those, you know, the musician and the, and the recorder and also how they can impact the relationship with the audience and the performer. So again, maybe before we get into the details of it, so what was your kind of methodology here? Kind of mainly interviews? Yeah, I did, um, I had scoured quite a, a lot of interviews through podcasts and YouTube and um, musicians whose opinions I, you know, I, I had heard them hint about their thoughts on bootleg recording, either, you know, their thoughts on how it affected their art or just artists that I knew had a stated policy, you know, even something as simple as that. At, at some point in their career, mm -hmm. they put out a document, either for tapers or, you know, talking about that you know, existing community. So I started with those artists and I was just trying to seek out a lot of interviews with them. And then I reached out to some of those current artists and also a sort of community of musicians that I knew and sort of branched out from there. They talked to people they knew and I gathered um, about 25 folks who, you know, had some strong opinions one way or another on the matter and specifically within improvised music. Um, you know, very, I, I don't like to qualify it per se, but, um, you, you know, it's hard to like draw lines when you're talking about genre, but I was certainly looking for uh, musicians that were towards the, the left end of jazz and the fully improvised music, you know, the more improvisation, the better, essentially, as I saw it for, you know, getting these artists' opinions on this relationship and it, it potentially having the most impact on the, that relationship. And did you do some surveying as well? Did you collect data that yeah. way? Yeah, I had a survey. Um, I've got it pulled up, actually. It was 10 questions, and this is, again, also just for improvising musicians. I had a couple questions in there where I sort of framed it just to get them, you know, they could get their bearings about conceiving of how they perform, you know, just questions that didn't really relate to what I was seeking, but just so I could have an understanding of the demographics of the group. Um, you know, where they perform, um, uh, what kind of genre they would say they're in, and what role does improvisation play in their primary performance genre. I had a question in there that I didn't really talk about in my paper, but um, I, I kind of alluded to it. Uh, and there were, But there's a lot more data in there that I could be exploring, and that question was, please rank what you as an artist perceive as the objectives of a public performance. Mm. And out of that, um, I had eight answers, which I felt were, you know, eight answers that they could choose from, which I felt like were, were pretty representative of, um, you know, the jazz world. And um, those eight were to promote an album, sell merchandise, uh, test out new musical material or ideas, mm. to practice an instrument, <laughs> which a lot of people actually responded, um, to promote the group or get exposure uh, provide a social experience for concert goers, to play requ requested or familiar material, to provide an ephemeral, unique concert experience, and to financially support your music through ticket sales revenue. So, you know, these are mm. answers you could look at certain genres of music. You could probably point to ones that would stick more than, than in improvised music for sure. You know, requested material felt all the way at the bottom of the list in my survey. But if you go outside of an improvised music realm, you're, that's probably number one right away. But the three that ranked highly were testing new musical material and 
providing a social experience and providing an, an ephemeral experience. But everything else got a fair share of the vote as well, promotion and practice and uh, get exposure you know, and selling albums, that sort of stuff, mm. all, all fell in there somewhere. Mm. Financially, support yourself also came in pretty low. So, yeah. Um, but the, that sort of stuff, uh, I didn't talk about too much in the paper. But you know, from there in the survey, mm-hmm. I got into how their thoughts on or objections to being recorded, and um, if it has any effect on their approach uh, in a live environment. And then I try to contrast that with the studio environment. Do they have the same sort of feelings when they're being recorded in a studio? And uh, how does their improvisation change? Yeah, you mentioned that at the beginning of the paper. You kind of you've talked about um, like this idea of a studio ethos. Yeah, yeah. In in jazz, yeah, maybe like you could kind of explain what you were kind of like meaning with that in, in relation to the live yeah. Uh, performances. Yeah, that's one of those things you could you know write a whole book about. Um, you know the psychology behind uh, you know performance uh, a musician's approach to performance of you know recorded performance and uh, you know I wanted to focus on the live environment and what recording meant there. But, um, you know, I felt like I couldn't necessarily skip over without acknowledging the that history of, of the studio. And, uh, you know, the approach, the approach to improvisation is for, informed by a number of different traditions. And it might be, you know, it, it might start, it might have started with the technological capabilities or limitations of early recording, you know, the, the length that you can record, the textures that you're able to get out of an early recording so the approach would be completely different from an in-person concert you know from positioning of the musicians to mm-hmm. um you know absence of solos even and things like that so it i think a lot of that stuff kind of lingered as technology advanced as the art form advanced some of these old techniques kind of stuck around in the studio environment because they're kind of a self-contained place where musicians aren't necessarily in 100% in control of their artistic statement. So these things hung around for a while. And then, you know, as the format, all these, as these limitations sort of fell off, I think the one thing that persisted with that, um, at least the way musicians conceive of the two environments being different is it still being a defining artistic statement and being you know, being able to erase something essentially, as if it didn't happen. So yeah, so it's actually it's interesting because linked up then with the studio ethos is the idea that you can document it, record it, and then make a kind of curatorial sure. judgment about it afterwards. You can mm-hmm. decide on the takes, um, which which I guess kind of leads into this to to kind of what you were primarily talking about, which was you know correct me if I'm wrong, but basically audiences documenting live performances. Uh, and then sharing that content ultimately that's kind of like the crux of your your kind of what your main paper right is about. so you know artists that are i guess you could assume artists that are are vocally open about that and don't have any qualms with people recording and disseminating are are probably ones that are are less likely to be editing their content in the studio or or be curating it obsessively and you know mm. they're the ones that are more likely to go in there and just do a live take and and uh you know bust bang it all out in a day or something like that so uh, I was trying to contrast those two things and and really see if that's the case. If artists think that way, you know, artists that might be very free with their music in a live setting and be open it, for it to be shared, is does that relate to you know their desire to have the music heard, or is it 
are they very loose about, you know, what they're putting out in the world? Do they conceive of how frequently it will be heard or if it will be the main way they get exposure? And why would they be as concerned about their studio product? You know, certainly they're investing money in that. Mm. And uh, there's still that lingering, uh, the studio product being the definitive artistic statement. So they're, you know, concerned about that. But yeah, so it's trying to contrast those two things. And, and I think a little bit of, you know, when I heard you speak, I was also, I was thinking a lot about, and also uh, Gabriel Solis, and when he talked about the, the videos, you know, searching the videos on um, on YouTube and, and seeing about how that would fit into a discography or, you know, how would we conceive of these things. And, uh, you know, a lot of these artists, will their number one exposure will be their bootleg material you know the the most people will hear these con these concert recordings versus their record you know at least uh you know a lot of the artists that i spoke with it's it things are kind of going that way and i think they'll continue to go that way um so you know how do they conceive of that i think we're pretty far away from that uh there being an understanding of that but uh, there's a little, a little bit of that showing in the, in the survey. Yeah, I guess there is like there are commercial benefits of this for people. So even though they might not sell so many of their records, having like a wide scale exposure on something like YouTube for for the for the lesser known artists I'm talking about, having you know that exposure on YouTube, um, you know might result in you know larger audiences, for example. Yeah. So it can have a, definitely it could have you know possible you know I think there's I think there's a little more value put on. Expo I think, uh, and a lot of mus jazz musicians may sort of roll their eyes at the word exposure, um, you know, having been offered so many gigs for no pay, and but you know the the manager may still kind of ask them to play a certain style or something like that. But in this case, I think there's they do value exposure when it's curated, and um, for the mm. for the people out there recording concerts that have a reputation for quality, you know, and have uh, 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 online presence uh, where they've curated certain bands that they're going to record certain artists and or they have a blog or something like that I think there's more value put on that and uh, you know when you know you're getting eyes on your material on your music uh, or ears on your music from someone that is just like listening to this curated series you know that isn't necessarily putting the artist's name into Google and, and getting that result um you know, if they if they come at it from being associated with other acts, that's I think a valued form of exposure in the improv community. Yeah. So, like one of the I guess like the kind of sites of sharing that you mentioned was I mean I guess there are many torrent sites, but you mentioned Dime a Dozen, for example, is one of them. Um, you know, as a kind of online um, you know sharing uh -huh. site, an online bootleg site. Um, and something that was kind of interesting to me about that was that there was uh, there was like an ethics of sharing that kind of emerged there that that you wouldn't have on YouTube, for example, um, you know, in the sense that they were uh, acknowledging the artist's wishes in terms of uh, their willingness to share their material. Yeah, I mean, the Internet's kind of wild west and uh, has been, you know, and uh, I mean, it certainly was from the beginning. And now it, it's the wild west in that it's there's so much information, it's hard to control it. Um, so YouTube, there are big artists that have money that will do takedown notices or they'll crawl the web and, and find examples of recordings and have them taken down, even if it's fair use and whatnot. But certainly in the jazz community, 
uh, no artist is going around around and taking down everything that's up there, you know. And and I think that's sort of generally the principle of the internet. How people use it is they don't they don't conceive of a fair use so much, or the artist wishes when they share things. But because these trading communities were created before the internet, really, you know, the technology has enabled this mass dissemination and you know this incredible wealth of information. But these communities. They're, they were really built before, you know, pre-internet. So they're just carrying over the the practices they had before that, you know, that started in the 60s and 70s and uh, evolved with mail, you know, bootleg trading. And I think, you know, they just updated their FAQs essentially and and their wikis and, you know, <laughs> and, and brought it online. And then when the, the torrent thing happened, it was, uh, I mean, there are a few sites out there that, you know, you can go to to get certain artist stuff you know, bootleg recordings, but, you know, there's a few sites that still maintain that integrity, and, man, stuff doesn't stay up there for long. If it's an artist, an unallowed artist, it will be down real quick, which has always Im- mm-hmm. impressed me. So they list they list the artists, and oh, they yeah, update yeah. this, right? That, that you yeah. know, the ones who are not willing to... And it's changed over time. Uh, you know, there's some artists that have been on there forever, that were, you know, that were on those lists before there was the internet, and... Uh, and then there's some artists. I mentioned Kurt Rosenwinkel in the in my paper, and he, you know, he's one of these. Sometimes you can kind of see the point in time. You kind of look at something that was disseminated, maybe as the reason why an artist decided to not be on the list anymore. You know, it being uh, a bad practice of somebody, or this, in his case, I think it was related to the material that he released, and uh, you know, he put out a primarily vocal album and he was touring and his stuff is still up there his his jazz trio is up there his improvised stuff is is still widely shared but you know when that when that group was touring and, and they're getting recorded by some european stations and they're playing stuff like it's exactly on the record to a t and you get a radio broadcast of it it's you know i could understand why you might be concerned about album sales revenue at that point so i, I think there's a number of concerns that people have, and and sometimes they evolve based on, you know, not, it's not necessarily the actions of a of a bootleg taper, uh, but also it might have to do with you know economic factors and and their material or or how it plays and and how it's being used and stuff like that. So, uh, and what were some of the other factors that people had concerns about? So I guess in the case of Kurt Rosenwinkel, there we have. You know the commercial implications. So the material is very much like the recorded album. So a high quality yeah. recording by a radio station obviously is a kind of a threat to that commercial one. So what what were the other kind of concerns that you came across? The low quality concert recording. Mm-hmm. I mean, the people I surveyed talked about concerns. I sort of like to theorize on on some of the the artists that have have been on these lists, you know, for a long time and and how they got there. And Schofield is one where it kind of. I don't know if I mentioned him in the paper, but yeah, I think he it's, did. He's yeah. kind of interesting because that one seems related to explicit wishes of the band members. He has certain projects that are freely shared, and then certain ones that aren't, and it's attributed to the band members uh, of certain projects being averse to to being recorded and being shared. Um, but he's got that uh, group the Uber Jam group that he had in the early 2000s, which sort of found their place in the jam band community. And, you know, it's, you're sort of not allowed in there unless you're, you're taper friendly. 
Uh, so, you know, that one, he was certainly widely shared when he was touring that band, and, and that's an exception to his, his uh, taping policy. So that seemed related to, uh, like, the community that he was in also, you know. Improving, improvising musicians, I think, if we're going to the far end of free improv, I th- you know, certainly the community plays a role in that. We're talking about musicians that are have their minds pretty open and are not scared to just go out there with any with you know with no plan essentially so on stage so that mindset kind of lends itself to being open to that so i think the community in some parts will dictate um you know the community around the genre um will you know the way the audience receives it will kind of dictate uh how open they are and then you know i talk with some of these musicians about the the quality like i mentioned um they were pretty split on if they were concerned about low quality recordings, you know, showing up high on Google search results like a, a video or audio and actually a little more were not concerned than were concerned. I don't think that's a big factor per se. I think a lot of people are probably used to, you know, seeing phone seeing video shot with phones at this point, so uh, that's not a concern. And then, and, I mean, we can make our own kind of, uh, you know, aesthetic judgments on that as well. Yeah. You know, if we see some phone footage, mm-hmm. you know, we know it's from a phone, it's not going to be truly representative, but, uh, you know, maybe mm-hmm. maybe it can have some value. But there is a, like, such a wide range in terms of the technologies people have. You know, some people do come loaded with some mm-hmm. pretty pretty good equipment and they can make some pretty, you know, pretty excellent recordings. And so, yeah, I think that was something that you mentioned as well, that there are kind of, Maybe you'd say like new norms of audience participation here then? Like has the audience changed or is it just a continuation of what you saw as a kind of pre-internet bootleg community? What I was sort of ultimately hoping to get to is is seeing if the shared material or concern over shared material, does that affect the improvising that happens on stage? And I'm, I'm mm. like a few steps from where, you know, trying to conceive a few steps into the future essentially, you know. The material's out there, it's online. People are consuming it, which is happening. And, you know, how much are they consuming it versus the recorded, you know, the documented official performance? That's uncertain, but certainly one's growing. And now, how is the audience coming in informed from that material? How does the improviser react to that? The audience, that audience, you know, maybe being familiar with their performance style. And is it helping to... Is it changing their their interaction with the audience? I mean, uh, you know, kind of a few steps beyond what we can reasonably assume. And certainly a a lot of musicians I spoke with were pretty split about if it's having an effect on the dialogue with the audience. But, you know, as far as how is that that audience made up of more documentarians or would-be documentarians? uh, I think, yeah, by like a simple definition certainly you know like people want to just put it on their social media or something like that but i think probably the number of people that have taken it seriously the number of people that are like involved to the level of the trading community um, i think that's been pretty constant i don't i wouldn't say that's necessarily grown the technology has enabled the mass documentation but i don't think it's there's been a proliferation of like a, a lot of documentation uh, yeah, at least not in sharing. <laughs> Maybe a lot of people were bringing Zooms to gigs and, and not sharing it with anybody. <laughs> like, I'm sure musicians would be fine with that. Uh, 
Um, you know, certainly. yeah, I think, that, I think that's probably quite common though. For yeah, sure. they're just not um, plugged into that that trading community, maybe. Yeah, but they want to have it for their own reference. Yeah, certainly a lot of students would probably you know have the technology for that just because they they need it for school and then uh, you know would document something yeah. for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, certainly going back to the case of Kurt Rosenwinkel, you know, there's no doubt that you know legions of guitar players have been going yeah. to his gigs and you know recording their mm -hmm. documentation for themselves. You know. Um, you know, harvesting those licks. Um, I guess uh, the other, one of the other things you mentioned was the kind of the issue of ephemerality. Yeah. I mean, I guess linking to the studio ethos, you know, this is a kind of separate thing and then that maybe we could say there's a live ethos where people are willing to kind of do more live, you know, kind of to perform in ways that, maybe more exploratory ways. And so I guess that's, you know, the ephemerality of the, you know, the jazz performance. Um, and so maybe that's a bit ephemerality is a little bit hindered, I think, maybe by this kind of recording process. I mean, is, is that what I think, is, when you mentioned issue of ephemerality in your paper, is that what you were kind of getting at or? Yeah, um, you know, being a, being a fan of documented uh, live concerts, I guess I can't like claim that ephemerality is, you know, <laughs> the number one thing, but there's still probably an ephemeral nature to a, a documented concert, uh, even if you're experiencing it secondhand you certainly can conceive of when an artist has a dialogue with the audience, you know, and I think that's the ephemeral component that I'm most interested in. You know, they're not just going up there on stage and, and doing the, their act, you know, or playing their album exactly as it is. You know, they're, they're changing the set list, their dynamics are fluid, the, they, uh, you know, their solo order might not be the same. You know, they could be completely improvising, which, you know, there's, what, what do they have? You know, they have themselves and the audience to, to get uh, feedback from, essentially. You know, it's a very ephemeral thing. But, uh, you know, when I talked about the ephemeral nature, I'm thinking, you know, does the concert... And I talked, you know, a little bit about in the survey there, I, I was looking at uh, the, the eight different uh, performance objectives. And, um, you know, how high do artists put ephemerality as like the key thing to a concert, um, should it be its own thing, separate from everything else? Should it be an experience? You know, how much of it should be saved only for the concert hall? I don't think anyone's, you know, gonna do like uh, pat downs or anything to keep people from <laughs> bringing any phones into a gig or something like that. But uh, there, I mean, there's some artists that will take it further than a request, you know, that will, have a statement or it will be read by the person on the PA prior to a performance or they'll stop playing if they see something in the audience or they'll call it out and uh, I respect that I think they're trying to guard you know they're trying to guard the concert experience being one of a certain value and it may not be the same value that other people expect out of a concert experience but I think probably the less um, you know, for certain artists, if they feel more comfortable on stage, you're going to get a better show. So some may feel more comfortable knowing that their material is going to be shared widely, you know, and that's, that's awesome. But some, you know, like I talked about some of these people that are taping shows will have, you know, they'll talk to artists afterwards and they'll sort of negotiate what the level of sharing is it will happen. Maybe it's just a copy for the band. Maybe it's 
like let me hear it first and I'll I'll say if it can go online or not yeah so you know as long as the artists and the and the tapers and the musicians are sort of negotiating that on equal terms and not just assuming one has the complete right and or the other does you know and like um, certainly it kind of seems that way at times audiences will just videotape anything and share it or musicians will become famous for walking off stage you know uh but i think the goal is that sort of negotiation to uh to find that medium where you can expect to get a great performance that is unique that's different that you're not going to get you know you're going to get a feeling different than what you would get just watching it secondhand were there any unusual um, or unexpected responses from your respondents or from the survey questions or anything anything that yeah, you didn't expect or was it all relatively consistent with what you would have kind of hypothesized I guess um, I mean I, I had a lot of places for people to write in responses I mean the people were really thoughtful about you know talking about their improvisational methods um, how in their head they are sort of broad generalizations and stuff like that yeah yeah, it's hard to pick out one uh, quote or something like that but as far as the results go I think they were pretty expected uh, yeah I think I mentioned this as well there was uh, the approach to improvisation in a studio environment 65% approach studio environment different than the live setting 70% said presence of a recording device in at a concert doesn't affect their approach at all mm. so you know that they're kind of flipped you know i think that speaks to their expectations of a studio a recording or maybe their adherence to <laughs> the live environment and if they're they're just going to stick to that no matter what you know mm. i don't know if it necessarily it's hard to parse that out but i don't know if the uh speaks to sort of um an adherence to uh, you know like a rigidity or something like that and to their to their life performance I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily like that but some it will admit it and in the comments they'll say you know hopefully this will go away you know hopefully i won't feel this way or you know ideally these two things would not be different you know but can't necessarily reconcile this two you know mm. there's that large group there of people that presumably aren't concerned at all in a live setting but in the studio they're <laughs> revisiting everything you know so it's it's tough to figure out what that means but that's sort of just maybe the a lot of musicians just trying to figure out uh you know find their inner voice and not being completely mm. sure of it at this point and then so i mean i guess that links to kind of well maybe it does or maybe it doesn't to you know your kind of conclusions at this stage so are you you know, is this still kind of an ongoing thing? Are you still collecting data, kind of trying to delve deeper into it? Or is it, have you kind of reached some kind of conclusions? I'm kind of always interested in what the community looks like. And I'm more intrigued now with the role YouTube is playing. You know, the way I, I conceive of, or at least the way I consume a lot of the jazz recordings is, is through BitTorrent sites and, you know, audio. But, um, a lot of the results I got from musicians and the talking day with musicians seems like YouTube was really the thing. So from there, I'd, I'd be really curious at looking like actual numbers for individual artists, trying to get an idea of their exposure on one platform versus another. And if they're aware of it, you know, at this point, I tried to jump beyond that and see if uh, 
you know, they were feeling an effect with their dialogue with the audience. And, you know, if they're reacting on stage to this recording, um, and it seems like the presence of recording devices doesn't necessarily, is that isn't triggering it, you know, like it maybe would have a decade ago or something like that. But certainly if musicians were exposed to, or if they're aware of how the recorded material plays out online, you know, where, where it's available and to what degree and frequency and all that, uh, you know, having that knowledge, I wonder if, if it then would, would have an effect. And so I'm not trying to like, uh, look up a bunch of people's stats and say, Hey, like, tell me if you're scared now, you know, <laughs> but, but yeah, finding the ones that are, that are finding these improvising, improvising musicians that are really aware of, what YouTube has done for their career and if they've noticed a change. So Mm. getting an even narrower survey group probably, (laughs) but uh, yeah, I'm kind of curious about sort of those metrics and if they, they're playing into it and not just the, the sort of fear or reward of, of knowing that someone's recording you, uh, but actually knowing the impact that has on your audience. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think I, I agree with you as well that YouTube is definitely, you know, becoming a very dominant platform for the way we consume, mm-hmm. you know, music in general, you know, and, and certainly jazz. And especially, you know, when we're when they're when we have interest in artists that are based in other continents, uh, you know, it gives us a window, you know, it doesn't give us that true experience of that live performance, but it gives us a window into it, you know, mm-hmm. um, much as record audio recording stage, you know, or have done for a long time. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of, yeah, it's great. So I'm, I guess I'm looking forward to, you know, seeing the finished version of this paper, uh, yeah. whenever, wherever it comes out. And I guess, yeah. and you your future work as well. Yeah. I guess maybe, maybe a very, very last question is, uh, you, you made it to see some, some trad music in Dublin in the end. I did. Yeah. Yeah. That was good. That's that's pretty nice. We uh, I was there with my sister, and uh, we got to the bar about at four thirty, and like uh, the place was there's just two locals sitting there. <laughs> I was like, so, uh, "Is there music here?" <laughs> and the guy's like, "Yeah," and like uh, you know, a pipe slayer came in at like five, and then another and violin and. You know, they kept coming in. The yeah, you know, it was like five thirty, and the place was standing room only. It was like wow, yeah, pretty cool. You know, it's nice to see that that uh, you know people be really into the music. And I'm re- like, part of my research is kind of around you know, and what I really like about music is when it plays a natural role in society. Mm. <laughs> like it, it's not performative, but it's like filling a void, like that. You know, and and the way, at least in America, that music fills a void is like as background music, like that's established. There's 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 that need for music, but you know what can what, how can live music play a role in like human just like just being, you know, essentially not putting an artist up on a pedestal and and you know watching them perform, but you know how can music you know be participatory in some way or. You know, how can it be a soundtrack for for what we do? And and certainly that's like an ideal, the an Irish bar, you know, like bar, bar music like that. That's not, you know, it's not covers. You know, people may recognize the music, 
Um, but it, it's not performative. It's very communal, and, you know, and it's also, it just contributes to the whole atmosphere. It's like the right sort of bar music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you can, you can hear yourself think as well, you know. It's really nice. So. Yeah, it's a great, it's, it's definitely a mainstay yeah. of uh, social life in Ireland, you know, a good, a good trance session in a, in a good Irish bar is uh, yeah, something you can't really beat, really. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like, uh, you know, the same could be, like, with the, uh, I mean, open mic nights are, are, like, a different thing where, you know, you're expected to be quiet and cheer for the person and whatnot, but I think jam sessions, jazz jam sessions, could could have a similar role. Mm. They're just so few and far between in the States. It's like, um, and I think Irish sessions is the same sort of thing. You know, any open session like that, it's just really hard to come by, and when you can find a, uh, when you can find uh, a bar owner that is willing to buy into that, you know, they understand the value of it. They understand the customers and, and how it gives the whole place a, a vibe and, uh, you know, establishes a community of, of patrons that they're going to have come back even when there's not a session. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it's so difficult <laughs> to find uh, people that uh, are willing to, willing to do that sort of thing. There's just, that have that level of unpredictability i guess mm-hmm. <laughs> in their bar <laughs> but for me it's very comforting you know the music is completely is reacting to the environment so it's really great yeah, yeah. excellent um well, i'm glad you had a good time in dublin you found some some good local music which is good um yeah. yeah thanks for your time as i said you know great to hear about your research again and look forward to reading it when it's uh, finished and out there yeah i appreciate it Okay, so that is all for this installment of Lines on Music. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. If so, do please like, subscribe, and spread the word. I'd like to thank Kryn Gabbard, Leisha Ward, and Alan Munchar for taking the time to speak to me about their research. You can find out more about their work via the show notes on the website. All the music you have heard in this episode, again, comes from Dublin's Redivider. I'd like to thank Matt Jacobson once again for his permission to use their music here. If you'd like to hear more about Redivider, you can visit Matt's website, www.matthewjacobson.com, or you can visit their label website and buy their music at Diatribe Records at www.diatribe.ie. The next episode will be out shortly, so please do subscribe to the podcast so you can catch that on its release. And as always, if you have any ideas, suggestions, or just want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.linesonmusic or via Twitter at linesonmusic. Okay, that is all. Speak to you soon. Thank you.
Thank <laughs> you.